Welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Let's Talk Micro. As always, I hope you had a great week. And you can always find Let's Talk Micro on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Good Pods. Whatever you listen to podcasts, you can find Let's Talk Micro. As for our social media, I am on Instagram as Let's Talk Micro, no apostrophe, on Twitter as Let's Talk Micro 1, on LinkedIn as Luis Plaza, and on TikTok as Let's Talk Micro. So please go ahead and subscribe to the podcast, download episodes, leave a feedback if the app that you subscribe to allows you to do so, and of course, leave any feedback, any suggestions on social media, or via email at letstalkmicro at outlook.com. And I also have a YouTube channel, which is called Let's Talk Micro, which is under construction. Any feedback, any suggestions, they are always welcome and appreciated. And if you haven't listened to the previous episode of Let's Talk Micro, go ahead and do so. It was a great episode. Instead of talking about micro, we talked about medical laboratory sciences. And in the episode, it featured Dr. Kristen Pesavento from Loyola University in Chicago. So she came to the podcast to talk about the summer immersion experience that the, their, that the university, that the Loyola University MLS program is having. And at the same time, she came to the podcast to talk about a master's program that they have in medical laboratory sciences. So when you graduate, you can work as a medical laboratory scientist, but you have a master's degree, which is a great fit for some students, because as you know, one of the issues that we have with medical laboratory sciences is that there's a huge unawareness about it. And then a lot of students, when they graduate, you know, they have a degree in biology or some other sort of de some degree in chemistry. But then they find out about medical laboratory sciences after they have graduated. So they, have, they go back to school to get another degree. So this is definitely a great fit for those type of students that, you know, you have a degree already. So you need to you know, have the prereqs that are typical for a medical laboratory sciences program and a bachelor's degree because this is a master. So maybe by doing this program, it saves you the trouble of having to get another degree, another bachelor's degree. And instead, you can go in and get a master's, which you know, it can help you also if you're maybe on the management track that, as you know, sometimes in the labs, they are requiring managers to have master's degrees. Overall, a great episode. So if you haven't checked it out, go ahead and do so. So in today's episode, we go back to microbiology and more specifically, mycology and yeast. You definitely know on social media, maybe on the news, you heard that in March, the CDC released an alert regarding Candida auris. So it will be, and I thought it would be a good idea to talk about Candida auris. Some of you that work in the lab, maybe you have worked with it and you have seen that you know, it's very resistant as far as, you know, on, for treatment options. And also that we have some challenges identifying it in the lab. So it was a great opportunity to go ahead and take a little time and talk about Candida auris. So in this episode, Dr. Sean Lockhart from the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, or the CDC, he joins the podcast to talk about Candida auris. And he talks about Candida auris and you know, he talks about resistance, where can we find it, what population is at risk, the challenges that we have with identifying it, what infection prevention measures we need to take. Overall, it was a great conversation with Dr. Lockhart. You know, I'm 
I'm very fortunate that he agreed to talk to the podcast. So I really enjoy this chat and learning about Candida Auris. And something that caught my eye was that he said, you know, that Candida Auris is rapidly acquiring resistance. And he said that at least one third of the, the isolates, you know, they are resistant to amphotericin B. And they went back and from 15,000 isolates that they had at the CDC, they tested them and only 12 were resistant to amphotericin B. And all this were for many years. So definitely it's showing how, you know, this yeast is acquiring resistance. So it is a great episode. I enjoyed it. I hope you do too. So let's go ahead and listen to it. So we have seen on social media, on the news, and we have seen a uh, you know, we have seen uh, news about Candida auris, and maybe those of you that work in the lab in microbiology, you might be familiar with it. Or at the same time, maybe you just study micro or you're on social media and you might see this. So I thought it would be a good idea to actually talk about Candida auris. So with me today, I have Dr. Sean Lockhart from the CDC, which is the Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Dr. Lockhart, welcome to Let's Talk Micro. Thank you. Glad to be here. My pleasure. So for the audience, uh, can you do a quick introduction? I mean, I mentioned your name, but just a little bit about you. Yeah, so I'm Dr. Sean Lockhart. Um, I've been at the CDC for 15 years. I am the clinical senior clinical laboratory advisor for the mycotic diseases branch, and I am our current CLIA technical supervisor. So I, I run the CLIA lab um, at CDC. But I have been studying fungi now for, for 30 years um, with an emphasis on candida. So this is uh, definitely in my wheelhouse. <laughs> nice and definitely welcome again. And I said it off the air, but on behalf of all the listeners, uh, thank you for this. So let's go ahead and just uh, can you do a quick overview about candida wars? Yeah, if you don't mind, I'd like to start with just candida in general. Um, so candida is, is a bug, it's a, it's a yeast that lives in us and on us. And the vast majority of us have candida living somewhere either in our gut or in our gastrointestinal tract, or even in any of our mucous membranes, in our mouth, in, in vaginas. And then some species will even live on our skin. So we're all exposed to candida all the time, and we're constantly switching strains back and forth. Now, that being said, there's a new candida species, Candida auris, and it was first discovered around 2007, first published in 2009, and the first isolate came from an ear of a patient in um, Japan. At the time, we didn't really think anything of that. New candida species are described every month, um, <clears throat> and there are literally hundreds of them described now. So it took a few years, but we started seeing reports of candida auris showing up as bloodstream infections, first in Korea, and then in South Africa, and then in India. And that is what really started to put it on the radar. That was somewhere around 2011 to 2013. We got interested here at CDC when there was an outbreak in um, Pakistan with some of our colleagues they had identified it as Saccharomyces cerevisiae, and they asked us to do strain typing to see if, um, if we could detect an outbreak. 
And when they sent us the isolates, it turns out it wasn't Saccharomyces cerevisiae. It was Candida auris. And they had seen a large number of cases among their patients. That was our introduction. We sent out some public health alerts and we started to see more cases in the US. At the same time, other countries around the world started reporting Candida auris. So it literally just emerged on the scene starting from nowhere um, in the you know, 2009 to 2013 range. And now we've described Candida auris from over 50 countries. Now, the interesting thing is we did a look back. So a lot of countries have these large repositories of, of yeasts in their freezers. And we went back to these repositories. Our colleagues went back and we didn't find Candida auris anywhere in those in in those deposit repositories. And so it it just seems to have all of a sudden appeared out of nowhere. And, and it literally spread itself around the world carrying um, on the skin of um, patients who've seen healthcare. Wow. So, right. So then going back, so it wasn't identified, then all of a sudden appearing like that. Okay. And uh, so what type of population is more at risk of infection with candida ores? So the, the population most at risk are those patients, those people who are um, seeking healthcare. The place we see it the most in the United States are at LTACs and VSNFs, and those are long-term acute care hospitals and ventilated assisted nursing facilities. So patients who are um, generally in very long-term care and in very critical care. We don't see it as much in ICUs in the US, but when you go to countries um, that are resource limited, then you start to see it in normal hospitals and in, in ICUs. So it, it depends on where you are in the world, but really you only see it if you're associated with um, healthcare, seeking healthcare. We do not see it so far being carried in the general population. And when we look at healthcare workers, we don't see it there either. There were three very large studies of over 800 healthcare workers in three different countries, and only two had candida auris. One had it in their nose, and a week later it was gone. One had it on their fingertips, and after washing their hands, it was gone and never reappeared. So we don't believe that at least at this time, we're going to see it in a healthy population. We're only seeing it in those people who have seen, um, who who have been in healthcare. Okay, so it's, so it's not seen in, in, in like out there in the community and healthcare, even there, and those facilities like hospital equipment and and things like that. As we know that a lot of organisms can survive there, and yes. Yeah, yeah. And and we do see these um, in the same places where you see those other things I'm sure you've talked about, MDROs, um, you know, the Klebsiellas and, and the um, Acinetobacters and, and those things. We see them in the same facilities and they send they tend to travel together where you're seeing one, you're seeing another because they're they're all associated with breaches in infection control. Yes, you know, now that you mentioned the yeah, I have talked about it and when I talk with students, especially about you know, like some of the non-fermenters, and you start talking about the organism and it's like, okay, seeing hospital equipment and then seeing hospital equipment and you see everyone's eyes like looking at me, it's like, yeah, we do have a lot of organisms that 
that you can acquire in a, in a healthcare setting. Um, so I was looking at, you wrote an article a year ago, and I, I have some experience with this myself about that. There were some challenges in identifying candida auras in the lab. I do remember years ago before we had the Molotov that we will put it on Vitek and it could you know, be misidentified as candida hemoloni. Um, can you talk about those challenges and to, up to your knowledge, you know, are they still in play, present today? Yeah. So the challenge was, um, I mean, the, the main reason it wasn't recognized is because it literally didn't exist in the database. So there was no way to recognize it at the start. Now, right away, Malditoff, um, the, the two companies that produce Malditoff machines got it in, in their um in 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 their databases and were able to identify it right away. Vitek 2 is another machine where they were able to to make some tweaks to their system. And now um, the majority of isolates can be identified using a, a Vitek 2. However, some of the other machines um, uh, like the, the Phoenix still aren't able to recognize Candida Auris. Now, in, in a resource-limited setting where they don't even have any of those, it, it's even more difficult. Um, there is an auger out that seems to be relatively specific for Candida Auris. There are a few false positives, but better to err on the side of caution than, than to miss it altogether. And, and there are some simple PCRs that, that we've been recommending that resource-limited settings can use to identify Candida Auris, but it still is a problem. Identification is still very much a problem because even in the U.S., only a third of hospital laboratories have Malditoff. Yes, that is that is true. And uh, you know, that now you mentioned that the database—that's something very important. You know, for all the listeners and those of you that work in the lab, that sometimes you know, especially if you have the Malditoff and you get some sort of ID and you're trying to confirm it. You know, check if that particular platform, you know, that that organism is in the database. A lot of times you can get erroneous IDs. And so you need to be careful when you're doing, you know, that using the type of instruments, make sure that with Vitek it's included there and things like that. So let's go ahead and, and talk a little bit about susceptibilities. So one of the things that is said about Candida, you know, Aurus is that it's it's more resistant as to compare, you know, to other other yeast. So can you talk more about that? Yeah. So I'll take a step back and just talk about Candida in general, because this is what really puts it into context. Um, in the most recent uh, antimicrobial resistance threat report that we released at CDC in 2019, one of the organisms that we listed was azole-resistant Candida as, as a threat. And in general, Candida tends to be resistant to azoles, which is one of the, the drugs of choice, about 7% of the time. So 7% of isolates are resistant, and that's enough to be considered a threat. Now, the majority of those are two species, Candida glabrata, which has decreased resistance, and Candida cruzii, which has intrinsic resistance. Now, compare that to what we're seeing with Candida auris. So Candida auris, the, the first isolates, the oldest isolates that we've been able to identify was susceptible to all antifungals. But over time, what we're showing is that it very rapidly acquires resistance and that resistance doesn't go away when the drug pressure stops. 
So approximately in the U.S., at least approximately 85 percent of all Candida RS isolates are resistant to fluconazole, which is one of the drugs of choice. And about one third um, are resistant to amphotericin B. To put that in context, we have a collection here at the CDC of 15,000 yeast isolates that we've collected just since 2008. Susceptibility testing on all of them in only a dozen isolates total out of all species included were resistant to amphotericin B. And here we have a third of all Candida RS isolates showing resistance. So that's huge. Now, the other drug class that we have, the echinocandins, about three to 4% of the isolates are resistant to the echinocandins, but we're seeing an increase in that resistance as well. Lucky for us, it's going up much slower, but we're seeing a, a steady rise. So when you put all of that together, at least a third of all Candida RS isolates are multi-drug resistant. That is something completely new to us for yeasts. We, we just haven't experienced that before. And about one or 2% of them are completely drug resistant, resistant to all three classes that are available for treatment. And that essentially makes these untreatable. The other thing to keep in mind about um, candida arsen resistance is in many countries only have two classes. They only have the echinocandins and azoles. And some hospitals only have azoles in a resource-limited setting. And with, you know, 85% of all isolates resistant to azoles, they can't treat these, these candida RS infections. The last thing that we, I, I'd like to, to add is that resistance tends to be specific to clones. And if you go into any one area in the U.S., there are only one or two clones of RS that are circulating. Take New York, for instance. The clone that they have circulating there, 99% of all isolates are resistant to azoles. So those cannot be used at all. Wow. Um uh, you know, one thing that definitely stuck in my mind, like before you said, so even like the isolates that you had already frozen in the CDC, like those were not, a lot of them were not resistant. So it's like definitely uh, rapidly acquiring it. Um, so is this a reason because are we seeing more cases and at the same time, since this resistant, you know, it becomes so fast. Is this why the, the CDC released that, like that warning this month? Well, the warning wasn't necessarily about the resistance. The warning was was about how fast it's spreading in the United States and, and the very rapid increase we're seeing. Over the last several years, in, in, in 20 to 21, we saw a 64% increase in cases and 21 to 22, 100% increase in cases. Now, some of that was due to the problems we had with, with infection control and lack of PPE during the COVID. So many more patients were seeking health care, and you know, it, there were a lot of problems with infection control in the hospitals at that time. That contributed some of it, but not all of it. There, there are some other factors. Um, because the first cases that came to the United States could all be traced to healthcare abroad. It didn't just appear here. It came on patients who had health care in other countries. So 
at that time, we were not seeing state-to-state -state spread. There were few enough cases that most of them could be traced and that um, when we saw an emergence in a new place, we could stomp it out fairly quickly. These, these patients were recognized and it wasn't spread. But because it's spreading in so many different countries, what's happening now, we, even if we have the same number of patients seeking healthcare abroad, more of them are going to be exposed to Canada RS abroad and come back and start another chain of infection from there. Part of the problem with Candida auris is when it's carried on the skin of a patient, it's asymptomatic. So they're colonized and there's no reason for a clinician to suspect that their patient might be colonized with Candida auris, aside from having healthcare abroad. So if it's not suspected and identified right away, it's transferred to other patients in a facility. And you can see quite a bit of spread of candida auris before the per first patient comes down with an infection, which is recognized. So candida on the body um, in, in non-sterile body sites is usually not identified to species. That's just not something hospitals do because we all have candida. And, and so it's only after the first infection that it gets recognized and then there's a look back and you discover that you know 10, 12, 15 patients in your facility are colonized. Now, as I said, colonization is asymptomatic. It doesn't bother the patient, except that five to 10% of the patients who are colonized will go on to have a bloodstream infection. And that is serious. So, um, you know, just having more patients colonized puts more patients at risk for then getting an infection. And it puts more patients at risk for spreading it within the facility. Okay. And you're colonized with it. And as you, so then uh, like other patients can get it by, so like there's like contact and then there's like some sort of like trauma, like some sort of injury. And then that's how it gains access and infects. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, most of the patients that we've identified with candida auris um, really have a lot of healthcare. And these are, these are very seriously ill patients. They have multiple lines going from the inside, from the outside to in, you know, tracheostomy tubes, central lines, um, feeding tubes, thing, things like that, um, catheters. All of those provide a way for candida auris to get from the skin inside the body and cause an infection. Um, a lot of infections that we see are wound infections as well. Candida auris doesn't cause wounds, but it finds wounds a, a very good place to grow. Okay. And uh, so as far as, you know, you mentioned like, like as far as infection prevention measure, measures. And so as far as, you know, what, what can we do uh, to prevent as far as maybe what, what cleaning, what can, you know, if we're cleaning the surfaces and, you know, equipment and things like that, what can we do? Yeah. So that's exactly right. Cleaning cleaning surfaces and, and equipment, because candida auris spreads, we believe, through dry skin. It's shed from the skin. And, and when you're in a hospital environment, you're, you're getting these um, harsh detergents to deter, say, the, the gram negatives and things that find their way on the skin after long-term health care. So you get these harsh detergents, your skin gets flaky, the flakes contain candida auris, and an entire room can become... Um, covered in candidaris. We found it on, on the beds, on the bed rails, 
on the sinks, on the windowsills, on the floor. One case, they even found it on the ceiling. Equipment is another place, um, primarily because not only is it coming off the patient, but equipment is often touched by um, you know nurses and, and doctors. They'll come in, they have gloves on, of course, but if they touch the patient and the patient's colonized and they touch equipment, it can go. So, you know, in, in rooms where we have Candida RS patients, you need to have very good infection control practices, proper PPE, and you need to use the right kind of disinfection, disinfectant. Not all disinfectants work against Candida RS. So um, the, the um, uh, quaternary ammonias, which are your, your Lysol type compounds, Lot of lot of healthcare facilities use that use Lysol and 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 those other quaternary ammonias that doesn't work against Candida auris. Um, you need bleach and, and bleach based um, disinfectants or um, combination disinfectants. You know, no one wants to use bleach. Bleach smells bad. It's corrosive, but you know that's that's what it takes. And we've worked closely with the EPA. They have a brand new list. It's called List P. You can go to the EPA website and look up LISP, and those are the disinfectants that have been shown to be effective against Candida auris. Okay, thank you for that. And I will go ahead and I will look it up and I will put it on the show notes so the listeners, if they want to take a look, they can go ahead and do so. Um, is there anything else that you want to add, Dr. Lockhart? I think <laughs> I think that about covers it. Um, I could I could talk forever about Candida it's, it's It feels like the only thing I've been doing since 2016. But um, but I think we've covered what what's most important for your listeners. Yes, indeed. Thank you so much. It was definitely a lot of good information uh, for the listeners and for myself. You know, I definitely learned a lot, a lot about it. Um, so, Dr. Lockhart, you know, once again, you know, this has been great. Thank you for taking the time to come into Let's Talk Micro. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. And that, my dear audience, it's the end of this episode. I hope you enjoy learning about Candida Auris. As always, I enjoy sharing this information with you. So please continue bringing that passion to what you do. We do such great work. We help the patient so much. And as always, thank you for listening. Please continue subscribing to the podcast and downloading episodes. As always, stay motivated, stay safe, and of course, continue talking micro. Until the next time. Bye.